Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Rozeal and this episode is so incredible. Uh, I have Michael Barron on. He's a baseball writer and photographer, a huge Mets fan, wrote for SMY, wrote for MLB. Um, and he, I've been following him, no joke, for probably about 10 years now on Twitter um, from who he is and what he's doing and being such a big part of the Mets universe, especially on the internet. He has been, you know, someone that I've paid attention to and followed literally since I was about 18, 19 years old. And it was very cool that I got the opportunity to hang out with him for an hour and just got to ask him questions on how all it all started, how he did it, um, what he plans on doing it, why he does it. And so again, it was, it was pretty surreal, honestly, um, the opportunity that I got to speak, how I got to speak with him. So I'm very, very grateful for that. So I hope you guys all enjoy this episode with Michael Barron. Today, special guest, I have Michael Barron, baseball writer, photographer, and a big, big Mets fan wearing his custom Tom Seaver jersey. Michael, appreciate you hanging out with me today, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No, I, I appreciate it. As I was just telling you, I mean, I've been following you on Twitter for I, like a legitimate 10 years at this point. Uh, you know, probably like when I was 18 and I started getting a Twitter account, um, I started following you. Here we are 10 years later. Right. And uh, I appreciate everything you do, man. I, well, I appreciate the follow and uh, um, I wish we had baseball, actual baseball to talk about right now, but um, I guess we can all imagine. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do anyway. And I guess in a way it's not, it's not the worst thing in the world from a weather perspective because it's kind of cold out there. And I, I wasn't, I woke up this morning thinking, well, you know, maybe, maybe on the real opening day, it'll be warmer. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I mean, with opening day looking like it's probably going to be that June, June, July timeframe. Now uh, it's going to be very warm. Uh, hopefully, I, you so. know, you know, I know that's what they're floating out there, but um, I think really it's, it's so, it's so everything's so fluid right now yeah. with, with the, with this pandemic and you know, how it's affecting New York and how it might affect other cities, you know, in the short and long term. And it's, I think that's one of the under discussed, um, issues with this disease like once it makes its way through new york and you know we're we're all bracing for the worst of course you know the new york area you know how's when they open up new york and the you know people start moving around again how's that going to affect people in other cities and i think that has a big impact on what takes place in sports this year specifically mm -hmm. um, but like i said it's a, you know time will tell i i'm not a doctor and certainly can't predict the future that's for sure no, but what we can do is we can talk about the past and some of the cool things that you've done. And, um, you know, again, you know, I've been a big, been a big fan of yours for a very long time and it's been, it's been really cool. And now obviously circumstances kind of, uh, allowed this, so, you know, you're at home, I'm at home. So we thought, you know, why not? Let's, let's learn a little bit about Michael Barron and what he's done. So the first question I have for everybody on the, for the love of sports podcast is why do you love sports so much? Well, you know, I was, I don't know that I have a good answer to that. It's just been a part of my blood since I was five years old when my dad took me to my first Met game at Shea. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was Mets Cardinals. We were sitting upper deck, third base side, and Dwight Gooden was on the mound. Um, I actually don't remember who won, but I remember that part. <laughs> and um, from that point on, like I was, I mean, baseball just became a part of me and it's probably just as much a part of me today as it was then, just, I think in a different realm and a different level of understanding. Um, obviously there's been a lot of different experiences in between that time, but, um, I don't know. It's just, it's just part of who I am. I don't know, you know, why, why I'm hooked on it so much. Um, I think, you know, the competition part of it is what drove me when I played um, I think, you know, the interest in that, that I had just in the science of, you know, when I was a pitcher, the, the art and science of mechanics and, you know, reading and studying, you know, so many different, you know, now, you know, Hall of Fame pitchers like Nolan Ryan and Tom Sieber and, and Dwight Gooden at the time before, you know, he had his problems. Um, and just, you know, the, the players, you know, just like for, you know, kids today, like they, they were heroes to me and people to look up to and, 
you know, they're not perfect people, but I think, you know, at the same time, you know, I don't think, you know, I don't think you're doing yourself a service looking up to um, perfect people because you have to learn lessons. You, you have to learn the lessons that they learn through their, through their mistakes and their transgressions, you know, look no further, you know, like Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, great examples of, you know, people who enjoyed success who looked like they were superheroes and on top of the world. And then, you know, they struggled, you know, in the early middle part of their lives, which disrupted their careers. And, you know, I can, you know, I think we all know, you know, the lessons they've learned and, you know, the struggles, the struggles that they've had, you know, with, you know, with their health and their sobriety. Um, but I think, I don't think there's any harm in calling those people, those people heroes because they've sort of risen from those ashes and that's kind of inspiring. Um, I wouldn't say that, you know, I've had those kinds of troubles to date, you know, and I, I feel, I, I feel so bad for someone like Dwight Good in particular, because this, you're not talking about a bad guy, you know, he's a sweet guy and a nice guy. He just has an illness. And, but in a way, the fact that he's been able to get to this point, you know, for me, you know, even as a 40 year old now, and I watched him when I was five, fast forward when I'm 40, that's kind of heroic for me, to me and inspiring that he's, has been able to find himself. And I, you know, I wish him nothing but the best, but, you know, I think that's part of the fabric of, you know, my, um, enjoyment or passion or obsession, if you will, of sports. Because I, I, I think that all, you know, ties into, you know, playing and being involved, you know, it's, it's, playing is, you know, a lot bigger and a lot bigger than just, you know, putting on the uniform, get, grabbing a glove and a bat and going out in between the lines. Like it's a mental grind. And, you know, I've learned so many different lessons, you know, most notably about staying positive, you know, because, that's a game that, you know, will be, beat you to death and um, you have, just have to stay positive and stick with it. And that's to me, like my, my life lesson, you know, because you think about all the different, you know, parts of your life where, you know, things are going really well and then sometimes they're not going well, but you know, the common, the, the, the common denominator is to stay positive and that's how you get through those tough times in life, whether it's financial or, you know, sports or, you know, you have, you know, issues at home with family, you know, you have to stay positive because eventually you get through. And I learned those lessons really early on just as a player. And, you know, it, I, I feel like, you know, I, I don't want to say I feel like I owe something to the game, but I think that's what's kept me a part of the game because, um, you know, you see what these guys go through over 162 and they get hurt, you know, Noah Syndergaard, you know, another great example right now with the Tommy John and the hardest thing to do in his situation for 12 to 18 months or however long it's going to be is to stay positive because he's going to have some really bad days, <laughs> you know, starting today when he wakes up from his procedure, you know, it's, he's not going to be liking this earth, but he has to know that there's light at the end of the tunnel. But the only way to do that is to stay positive mentally and, you know, aim towards that goal. And I think that's, like I said, that's a, that's a common life lesson for everybody. Yep. And you can learn that through sports and, 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 you know, you've, you've described it through baseball and baseball is the one sport where, you know, being a failure only 70% of the time makes you one of the best in the game, right? Like it's such a weird sport where you're going to lose. You have to get 27 outs. There's no time on the clock. You can't take a knee. You have 27 people at a minimum have to get out on one side. And it's, it's just crazy, you know, how that works. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I love baseball so much because some of these games take two hours then you can watch Yankees Red Sox game that takes five and a half hours and it's only nine innings. It's confusing <laughs> and I'm going to watch all of it, but I don't understand why it has to take so long. And, and, and I like the way you, uh, I like the way you preface it, you know, again, going back to some of these heroes and of course, Dwight Gooden, you know, if people don't, people that don't know enough about him, th those first few seasons he had, you know, we thought what Jacob deGrom did these last couple of years was incredible. Go back and look what he did. He was just on another level compared to the rest of the league. And it's unfortunate, as you said, he's got this illness and it's, um, we're never going to see what, what could have been, right? It, it stinks. But as you said, he, he rose through the ashes and he learned through his mistakes to now become a hero to some people. And I think, you know, the way you said it is very elegant. And I, and I appreciate you bringing that up. I think that's great. Yeah. And I mean, you, another point about Dwight, I mean, it's the same, you know, as being a player or going through an injury, like he has his bad days. He, you know, I think we all know he has his bad days and his, he has his really bad days, but I think there's something to him you know, that's gotten him to this point, you know, he's what fifth, almost 60 years old and he's dealt with so much over the last 35, really 35 years. When you think about it, 35 years of drugs and abuse and, you know, 
routines to keep him on the wagon. And it's just for, you know, he's been able to stay positive throughout it all, even through his darkest days when he probably didn't want to be here anymore. He knew that he owed something, you know, to, to society, I guess, or whatever it was. And like I said, I think that's inspiring in its own way, you know, because he's, you know, he's a good person and deserved, he deserved better than the illness he has. And, um, it, and like you said, it's really a shame because that was, you know, I don't know if you're old, I don't think you're old enough, but I mean, I remember seeing him in 85 and 86 and there was nobody like that, that, you know, certainly I've seen since as great as DeGrom and people like Clayton Kershaw have been and, you know, Randy Johnson, when he was on top of the world, like there was nothing like Dwight in 85 and 86. And it's just a real shame that he couldn't keep it up because, you know, of his own illness, you know, that's really what was prohibitive for him. And, um, but like I said, you know, I, I think about him a lot, you know, just because, you know, he is, he stays, he's stayed positive. And, you know, when, you know, I've struggled, you know, we all struggle, you know, at some points in our career or, you know, we have those good days and bad days, peaks and valleys over, you know, longer periods of time. And, um, but yet if you, you can't be successful without the, without learning from those, those struggles. And the, the key, like I said, is to be positive. And, you know, even as I've, you know, struggled in, you know, sports writing over the last couple of years, you know, I've stayed positive knowing that, you know, I just want to find the right thing to do and then I'm going to do it. And, um, you know, I know the media landscape has changed a lot, you know, over the last few years, but I still think that there's light at the end of the tunnel for me and getting the right thing, you know, and I don't think for me anyway, right. Doing the right thing is you know, writing my own, you know, site. I, I don't think that benefits anybody. You know, I want to do something that benefits other people and that's what I'm in it for. I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I do the work because I know people I've done the work in the past anyway, because I know people enjoy it. I, I provide the content I provide now, not for me, you know, it's for, so other people can learn, you know, or, you know, get information quickly. And, um, you know, that's why I'm in the game it's for other people. And we appreciate you, man. And again, that's why I'm, I'm very grateful that you, uh, you decided to come on and hang out with me for a couple of minutes. I think it's really cool. Again, just a lot of full circle stuff coming on. And, um, I obviously want to talk mostly about your writing, but as a Mets fan, um, I'm 28, so I was born in 91. So I've seen a couple trips to the World Series, but I've never seen what it was like when we won. What was it? You know, you were relatively young still. How much of 86 do you remember? And and shower me with those emotions because I don't think I'm going to see it anytime soon. Well, keep the faith, first of all. Stay positive. Uh, positive. Stay positive. Exactly, exactly. The Mets actually have a good team now. And, um, you know, it's a solid, sustainable team in my view anyway. Um, But... I mean, we can talk about that later. Um, yeah, like you said, when I when they won, I was six years old. Um, so I don't have the perspective. I didn't have the perspective I on that that I had today. All I knew really was that this was an awesome team. Gary Carter, Dwight, and Daryl were my three favorite players. I'll throw Keith in there too because um, I used to mimic Keith in that batting stance that he had. With you know, his arms were you know way out here, and you know I. I still kind of do that at times when I'm bored, uh, but um, I remember, I mean, I can tell you my experience from game six because I was there. Um, and I remember it actually quite vividly. Again, you know, I don't remember having an understanding of what was going on, but I remember when that ball went through Buckner's legs and, you know, I've been at Shea when the stadium was, was shaking and, you know, I was actually scared for my life in that, in that stadium at times in 2006, when Indy made that catch, like that was pretty insane. And the the upper deck was literally going back and forth. I was thinking, I'm not sure whether to be happy or if I need to get the hell out of here, you know, but when that ball went through his legs, I mean, when they rallied, like the stadium was going crazy, it was shaking, you know, it was, I remember it was vibrating and shaking, but when that ball went through Buckner's legs, the whole place, like, like was like a ball of fire. It exploded and just an amazing, all, all I knew was, you know, cause where I was, I was, our seats, I don't know if you remember um, in, in that game when Dave Henderson hit the go ahead home run in the half inning before, and he hit the, the scoreboard. That's where our seats were. Like if you like pause it and you can get a clear picture, you see little me like sitting right there. <laughs> but, um, and I remember when that ball hit that scoreboard, there was a collective, Oh no, you know, 
they're going to win these, you know, they're going to break their curse up here, you know, and, you know, and it was a real, it was almost like a funeral when that ball hit that, that scoreboard. But, you know, the next inning was like, no, I still haven't seen anything like it. And I was at that Robin Ventura grand slam single game where like nothing went wrong in that inning, you know, um, because everything was going wrong until two outs and nobody on down two in game six. And when they started to rally, even when Carter got the first hit, they were like, yeah, okay, let's see, you're going you're gonna to prolong the inevitable. That's, I remember that the crowd wasn't really cheering that much when he got that hit, but, you know, as the hits kept coming, you know, and then you find that ball for that wild pitch was finally thrown. That's when things started to go nuts because they tied it, right? And then and we could, so from that seat anyway, from that seat, we couldn't see the ball go through Buckner's legs. All we knew, because the stadium exploded, was that something amazing had just happened and there, you know, you could see Knight rounding third. He was going crazy. We couldn't, we couldn't see, you know, cause there was a, the, the vantage point, the angle was, was not right. It was hard to see. And it really didn't matter because you could see what was going on with the players in the stadium. Um, but I mean, that was the most amazing and I was only six and it's still the most amazing game I've ever, ever experienced in my life. And I think part of what makes it amazing, at least, you know, this is the way I think about it, was that I had no clue. I was six years old, no clue. All I knew was that they won and the stadium was going crazy and it was loud. And I remember my ears were ringing and people were yelling and screaming, let's go Mets on the way out in the ramps. And, you know, people are just hugging each other and kissing each other. They didn't even know who they were. I remember saying, I was with my cousin, I remember saying like, do they even know each other, <laughs> you know? Um, it was, it was pure ecstasy in a baseball context. And, you know, there haven't been, you know, many greater moments in baseball history. And maybe it's that, that's the case. That's, that's, you know, a simple fact of the matter. And, you know, I was able to be a part of it, even though I was little, but I also think what makes it great was that I had no like response other than that. It was amazing that they had won given the circumstances. And uh, maybe if it, that had happened and I was 40 instead of six, you know, I would have, you know, studied it and examined it more after the fact. But, um, you know, I think that's also great about being there in person is that sometimes it doesn't matter, you know, why things happen when you're at a game, as long as they happen. I think mm -hmm. when you're sitting and watching TV, or, you know, listening to it on the radio or watching game day now, especially with all the statistical overload that there, that exists. Um, I think that can take away from some of the enjoyment. I, it, I think it has taken away from some of the enjoyment for me. Um, and, you know, I, I have a responsibility to understand, you know, the what's and the why's, but sometimes, you know, it's, it's supposed to be a game and sometimes the what's and the why's don't matter. I mean, I know when I'm at, you know, my kids, you know, T-ball league, you know, it, the what's and the why's don't matter as long as they're having fun and as long as they win. And I think that's the purity of, of all sports, specifically, you know, baseball, you know, because once the ball, you know, is thrown, the pitcher has no control. Once the ball, once the hitter hits the ball, the hitter has no control, you know, so it's, it's not systematic like other games. And I think that's what makes it so pure. And, uh, you know, I think that's what makes game six so special for me. I wasn't there for game seven because it was rained out the Sunday night. And so it was, a, you know, it was a school night on that, on that Monday. So, um, and the whole reason I got to go to game six to begin with, because it was my mother's birthday. And my mother said to my father, no way you're going, <laughs> you know? So I got the ticket and um, I still have the ticket upstairs actually. That's awesome. Shout out to your mom. That's incredible. That's yeah, so... that's one of the good things she's done for me. It was a great <laughs> gift. <laughs> that is an awesome gift. And uh, yeah, man, I mean, I just, you know, as a Mets fan, we look back on 69 Miracle Mets all the time. We look back on 86, you know, um, you know, the, uh, what was it? The ESPN 30 for 30 came out a few years ago. That was incredible. That kind of documented everything maybe painted some of the guys in a worse light, maybe painted them in a, it is what it is. The bad guys won. I don't care. We still won. And that's all that matters to me. But uh, I all, totally, they're all, human, they're, they're all human beings. They're imperfect. You know, exactly. although, yeah. you know, but that's the thing, you know, we, your, your comment really make it, it's an interesting point because, you know, we view baseball players, people on the other side of the fence in between the lines, you know, as superheroes and superheroes mm -hmm. are perfect. Superman was perfect to people right in in metropolis he couldn't do anything wrong and you know that's the same for us you know like 
you know, with, with baseball players or really athletes in general, like LeBron James could do no wrong for ba- for basketball fans. Michael Jordan, the same, you know, Tom Seaver, Nolan Ryan, like these were, these are perfect people from the stands, but they're human beings in the end. They're just a lot richer than us. And that's the only difference. They make a living that's way great, way bigger than ours. That's really the only difference, you know, except, I mean, obviously they're blessed with talent that most of us don't have, but, um, and they're, they're all, you know, and some of them are really humble down to earth. Um, you know, David Wright being one of the most amazing people I've ever had the privilege of covering. Um, you know, Latroy Hawkins was another, you know, real down to earth, you know, he got it, you know, and one of the nice things about, one of the great things I thought about Latroy Hawkins was that he made sure everybody around him in the clubhouse got it you know, and that this wasn't some sort of fairy tale. And, you know, I would, you know, he really kind of led a lot of the younger pitchers, you know, when he was a Met. And I thought that was really important for the growth of that team leading up to 2015, you know, that you had guys like that to say, you know, just because you're here, it doesn't mean you're going to stay, you know, you have to figure out how to stay. And I think that was his, one of his core lessons that he would teach people. And it was very important for the players, you know, down the line, you know, a year or two after that. Um, but David Wright was even, even today, I mean, I, I don't have to tell you or anybody, you know, that that's, um, you know, a real unique individual and you don't talk about someone who had to stay positive, (laughs) you know, the, he had something happen to him, which was, you know, mostly bad luck, um, you know, with his injury, but, you know, for year after year, you know, he put in all the hard work just because he wanted to get back out there and he went through a lot of trials, you know, and failed in a lot of them. And, um, but he still managed to stay positive until he said, you know what, my brain wants me to do this, but my body's telling me I can't do it. And, um, and that was a very difficult decision for him. I can tell you that, you know, and again, but I admire him for, you know, recognizing that at a minimum, but um, you know, he's did so many different things for me and a lot of other people, you know, in that, you know, in that clubhouse, which, you know, it, it would take, you know, hours just to list the highlights. And that just, I think, speaks to the kind of individual that he is, even today. That's all you ever hear about David. I mean, he's my favorite player, you know, hands down uh, from the Mets organization because he, he came up, up, I can't remember the exact year, but I, I was just old enough to really start to understand not just the game, but like, more of it you know not just like cool a single and then we scored a run that's great like really understand what's going on and why it's going on and he had some just incredible seasons in there and just you know as a met you know thankfully he stayed you know there's oh you know there's so many stories of all these mets that you know i was looking at the um you know opening day lineups i can't remember who tweeted out it might have been you even at this point just how many you know how many uh you know how many catch you know the catcher that had the most opening day lineups and the the right fielder that had the most opening days and then you see david right you know at third base and he is the most you know hands down there so it was he's just such a great person and i thankfully was actually at uh game three of the 2015 world series where he cranked that home run mm. which was really cool full circle for me and it was just incredible and you know watching uh you know watching the last game you know him and his daughter and everything you know i i 100% cried like not even a question <laughs> sitting on my friend's couch just like hey man I want to watch the Mets game just because it's David Wright's last game I'm just sitting there drinking a beer crying by myself on his couch so <laughs> it was uh it was important he was incredible you know hands down my my favorite player and you're right you know we do look at them as superheroes like nothing can happen and then we see you know what can happen so you know I, it's a it's, it's a it's an interesting world and you know if you ever got the opportunity to to tell him that and you would probably be one of you know, many thousands who would say, you know, tell him the same story. And he would genuinely appreciate that from each individual who says, who, you know, who says it wouldn't just be this blanket. Oh, I really appreciate it. You know, thank you. It wouldn't be blanket at all. That's not him. You know, he, you know, he would probably love to hear that, you know, just cause that's who he is. You know, there are other players who, are like, you know, this is a job, but, you know, for him, it was not just a job, you know, he felt like every day, you know, he treated every day like his last day in the big leagues. And I think you saw that in the way he went about his business, um, the way he went about his rehab, you know, because he, you know, he wanted to get back because you never know when it's, you know, you never know when that day, that today is your last day, you know, what, whatever day is going to be your last day rather. And, you know, I think when he was healthy, you know, he, you know, just in watching him work, you know, behind the scenes and the things that he did, you know, for his team, even before he was captain, you know, he was the captain in there. And, um, 
you know, he treated every day like, you know, it might be his last. And I think, I think that's, you know, what certainly brings out the best in people because you never, you, you can't take anything for granted. You know, he certainly didn't. And he is, he is, you know, he made, you know, millions upon millions of dollars. And even as he was making those millions, he never took any of this for granted. And you now he's, it's hard for me to call him a hero because I saw him in a different light, but I admire him and the things that he went through, you know, and certainly the things that, you know, I, you know, a little bit of a backstory, you know, David Wright, you know, with his neck injury, you know, we kind of have, you know, I've had the same scar, like we had the same exact surgery. And so we kind of, you know, I, I would talk to him a lot about, you know, what he was going through. And, you know, I told him like, you know, I had the same, you know, had the same condition under different circumstances, but the same condition in my neck. And, you know, he, you know, just to listen to, you know, what he was going through, it was remind me a lot what I was going through when I had the same um, injury. And in the end of 2007, um, same surgery, same exact problems. You know, it was amazing how, how similar the condition was. And, um, you know, and I, it, it's funny though, because I went through it and I was, I would listen to him and, you know, I'd go back and forth, you know, just emailing him, you know, questions when I was, you know, I, I would have a question because, you know, he's exposed to more, you know, he, he's more, well, he's better connected, obviously, than I am. So I, if I had a question, he, and he would answer just like that, you know, and um, I, you know, for personally, I couldn't, you know, that's just one of the things that I appreciated, just a little, you know, a little backstory. I mean, he's mm -hmm. just a great guy, you know, he's just very rich and there's nothing to, you know, be intimidated by just because he's got, you know, more money than I can ever possibly imagine. And I think, you know, that's what a lot of people are starstruck by. Wow, that's David Wright. And, you know, some people say, yeah, you know how much money he makes, you know, and, you know, I, I think he would trade it, trade a lot of that money anyway, back just to be able to play, you know, mm -hmm. and go out on his terms. You know, I think he would, you know. Absolutely. You know, he, he comes across as that kind of person. And that's also what I've always really enjoyed about him. Um, so that was, that was great. Thank you for that, that little, uh, that little side story. I did not know that. So um, yeah, that's very, and again, just sheds him in, in the light that I have always seen him in. Um, and I think that light just got a little bit brighter. So I appreciate, appreciate you sharing that story. And um, so yeah, we talked a little bit about 86. We talked a little bit about now. I, I want to talk some more about you. Uh, we haven't really talked about you too much. And that was the whole point of having you on. I mean, we could just talk about the Mets all day. I feel like that's yeah, an easy I, thing. I can go on uh -huh. for, I'd rather do this <laughs> than go back to work later. Let me tell Perfect. you. Perfect. Look at that. Then, hey man, I'll keep you as long as you'd like. But um, so um, as I said, you're, on Twitter, I mean, I don't remember what the last count was. Somewhere in the thirty thousands, if I'm not mistaken, for followers, something like that. Yeah, thirty. Somewhere, like somewhere in the low thirties, I guess. Pretty impressive, right? Like it takes a while to accumulate that number of people, and so I guess when when did you discover the platform? When did you start writing? Like when did all of this stuff, I guess, on the internet start to happen for you? So, I joined Twitter sometime in two thousand nine. Um, it was early part of that season. That's really when I got um, fully engaged, you know, with um, SNY. And um, at first, I didn't, I didn't even know what Twitter was, you know, April, May. And, you know, I was told by people at SNY, you know, you should really have a Twitter account. You know, and I said, I don't even know what this is. You know, I knew what Facebook was, you know, but I didn't, even to this day, I, I don't use Facebook, you know, my personal Facebook at all. And I, you know, I really am terrible. I haven't updated my, my um, brand Facebook and lately, but um, you know, it is what it is, but you know, I think, you know, being able to being certainly being involved with SNY and writing for Mets blog for all those years, you know, you can thank them for the exposure and um, you know, the, even the opportunity to do what I did, which was to, you know, cover the team, both at home and on the road and, um, you know, get into the clubhouse and get that context, get on the field and get that context. I mean, I, you know, that, that speaks to my, my objective in the next gig, whatever that is, that I think that context is important and without it, I don't provide much value. And I think, you know, being able to, you know, learn from, you know, team executives and, you know, the players and, you know, the trainers and all those, everything, you know, the ongoings and what, what it takes just to get ready for 710. You know, I think that played a huge role in, in the success that I had in those years. Um, and I think with that success came the followership uh, in social media. 
um, it really didn't actually explode to uh, explode is really a bad term because it's really only it's not like it's 32 million followers it's 32,000 followers no well, not yet <laughs> uh, maybe when I if I run for president when it'll go up that high but um, I, I, I think though with that success and being able to stay on brand and being able to provide that unique perspective um, which you know, I, I don't know that a lot of the, you know, the, the, the mainstream writers, you know, have mastered even to this date, and they've been, you know, in social media for a long time. Um, I don't think they've been able to master that. But I also think the engagement part of it, it has been a, a missing piece for a lot of the, the reporters and certainly the players. And, you know, I remember speaking to, you know, people like Matt Harvey and Dylan G when, you know, players first started getting Twitter and, it was, it wasn't obviously still is a very dangerous path for them to go down. But at the time, you know, people didn't really know, you know, certainly the players didn't really know what the, the penalties for a mistake were, was on Twitter. But I remember saying to both of them, and we were down in Port St. Lucie at the time, it was much different, much different clubhouse than, than the, the 2012, 2013 clubhouses. But um, I remember it, we, I was saying to them, I said, remember, like Twitter is the bridge for the fans to you. And it's an opportunity to show the fans that you're a human being, you know, who you really are and that you really appreciate, you know, their, their, fo- their them following you and their loyalty. And, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I, you owe them responses, but it helps to engage with them. It makes them feel a lot better about themselves and whether it's, you know, false or otherwise, you know, and, you know, if if you respond to a fan, the fan will then maybe go to, you know, his or her mother or father and say, I just talked to Matt Harvey and how cool would that be, you know? And I I don't know if, you know, I think a lot of some players are better better than others in the engagement. You have to be really careful because, you know, a lot of it's hate out there and you can't, you can't give in to the hate. That was another thing that I told him. I said, ignore it, you know. Um, you know, I think it was Latroy Hawkins who told me once, he said, you know, everybody has Twitter balls, right? He said, they'll say whatever they want to you on Twitter, but if you met them face to face, they wouldn't, they'd be so starstruck and intimidated by you. And I said, I, that stuck to me today. And I, whenever someone's, if someone really, you know, hits me below the belt, I always respond with, you know, I double dare you to say that to my face and I never get a response, you know? So, um, but um, I think being able to do that, you know, I I make it a point to engage with as many people as I can. Um, I also make it a point to call out misinformation. I think that's in in baseball. I try to stay away from politics, although I've slipped a little bit in the, in, you know, in this uh, COVID-19 crisis um, and I shouldn't slip, but that's, see, you know, I make, you know, that's a mistake on my part, but, um, you know, certainly with baseball and the Mets, you know, if I know something to not be true for a fact, you know, I will call it out. And I think that's important too, because, you know, they're, like I said, these are human beings just because, you know, Brody is the GM or, you know, I, I don't know, Marcus Stroman, you know, has three bad outings. It doesn't mean they're not human beings and they're not working hard to not, you know, have a bad day. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so, like I said, if I if I know something or someone says something that's false, you know, I'm going to call it out. You know, so a great example. Someone said to me on um, on whenever Noah Syndergaard, when it was announced Noah Syndergaard had the the arm injury, you know, there was a whole this whole debate, you know, by all the all the doctors on Twitter that um, you know his surgery is not uh, not essential. And that H and one person said an HSS doesn't have an ICU unit anyway. And I said, that's just factually inaccurate. I've been in the, in their ICU unit because I'm a walking orthopedics dream, as I like to say, you know, and I've, you know, all, many of my orthopedists are in that hospital. I've been in the ICU as factually false, you know, so they do have an ICU, which in fact, I was told what three days ago, there's, they may actually turn that ICU unit into a triage unit for coronavirus. So um, that's by people in HSS. So I'm going to call it out. You know, I'm not afraid to call it out. And I think that's important too, because then you become trusted and you earn credibility that way when you're honest for better or for worse. Um, and I think that's what's led to that success. I mean, I think that's a part of it. Mm-hmm. 
I think the other part of it is just luck. You know, um, there, I think I've just been very fortunate over the last 10 years to, you know, be in this place, in this community. Um, and I just wish I had, you know, a bigger platform, you know, for, to, to write these bajillions of thoughts, um, on my, you know, but, um, do you lose me? I can't hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, okay, cool. You're back. Um, okay. Yeah, for some reason, the audio just cut out there for a second. Uh, the last thing I heard was um, just fortunate uh, with some luck. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I think it's just, I've just been lucky on, you know, more than anything else. Um, I think just getting started with SNY in the end of 2008, early 2009, uh, you know, I emailed Matt Cerrone at the right time. And we just kind of connected from there. And like, he's still a great friend of mine. You know, we talk you know, regularly and obviously we can't see each other right now, but, um, you know, he's been a friend of mine for, you know, 11, 12 years at this point. And, um, you know, but it was, you know, that was, that was luck. I mean, I don't, I, I wasn't a writer at the beginning. I have a degree in computer science. I got a C in freshman English. You know, I, I don't, I didn't, I still don't think I know how to write. I'm a, I think I'm a better editor than writer just because I know grammar rules. I'm a, you know, I'm a grammar cop, even though, I think it's one of the worst things you can do in social media is be a grammar cop, but I'm a grammar cop at time. I, that's the first time I've ever admitted that, by the way. Um, Thank you. Honesty is the first step, Michael. Honesty is the first step. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, like I said, I think I'm a better editor than writer. And so, you know, it was, you know, he really had to convince me to write. And at first I said, look, this isn't like what I do. I, let me just take photos you know, I'm happy just to do that and provide photos. I don't even want any money. You know, I, I think it's just a cool opportunity, you know, to be on, the, you know, in that photo box and among those players. And it was a, when I first did it, even to the, the last time I did it, um, every day felt like a dream, you know, and that's the way I viewed it. You know, I viewed every day, like, you know, kind of like, you know, like what David Wright experienced, you know, how David Wright went about his business. I viewed every day as the last day I was doing it. And I, tried to make the most of it. And I think my wife hates me for it because I was like overly passionate and obsessed about, um, you know, being involved, you know, and being able to, to shoot and, and come home and spend all night editing the photos just so I could have them presented presentable by, you know, nine o'clock the next, the next day. And I don't think I could do that today. You know, I think I'm a little too old for that, but when I was younger, I was able to, you know, go, you know, 16, 17 hours, you know, just for one game, you know, just between being there, taking the pictures, you know, covering and writing and doing the photos and it got exhausting, you know, and I think I hit my breaking point when I turned 35 after the world series, I just couldn't, I remember saying, I just can't do this anymore at this mm -hmm. pace, you know, so, um, but, you know, but I think that's another component of, you know, that success is that, I had this relentless pursuit of perfection and I know it wasn't perfect and I know it still isn't perfect. I made a mistake today. For instance, I thought for whatever reason it was 2019 and the Mets were opening and supposed to open in Washington today. And I wrote that on Twitter and I responded, I corrected it. And then under that I wrote, I'm seriously losing my mind at this point. I thought it was 2019, <laughs> you know, what? but like, you know, it, it, I do strive to for perfection and everything, and it probably drives a lot of people crazy, you know, that I'm around every day. But um, I think, you know, I just was always taught to do my best, and whatever that best is, I mean, I set a high bar for everybody, and it's probably, you know, certainly for, you know, the the kids in the house, and you know, maybe a too high a bar at times. But it's the bar I would set for myself, and you know, I just it's just the way I am, I guess. Cool. I mean, I never understood why striving for perfection. <laughs> for perfection is a bad thing. I think it is a good thing. I mean, you have to, I mean, be self-aware. Like if you're not going to put something out because you're waiting for it to be perfect, that's a problem. If you're trying to get it as good as possible. And then when the time comes, you have to release it as you did with, you know, your photos, you tried to make them as great as possible. So that way by nine o'clock, they were as close to perfect as possible. Now, if you were never releasing those photos because you were waiting to make them perfect. I think that's where the problem lies. So I think, again, what you were doing, I think that makes sense and how you did it makes sense. And, um, you know, again, just like the opportunities that it seems like you got, you said lucky. I don't believe in luck personally. I mean, you, you reached out 
to that gentleman and that's true. you did the work like that that that's you don't get lucky if you don't reach out right so clearly how much is luck involved not that much now was it the right time timing's everything so that mm-hmm. that might have been what it was but i guess with you know with that with your break into the industry like if you weren't a writer you weren't ed- you weren't an editor were you a professional photographer or was it just something fun like kind of a hobby like how did you break in and get these huge opportunities right off the bat S and Y. Um, it was really all at the same time. I mean, I remember I took my first photography class in high school, in a senior in high school, and I took it because I needed a minimum number of classes, you know, in the second, in the, I think it was the second semester in high school. It was 1998. And um, I remember my dad gave me his, uh, he had a, his SLR from his Minolta SLR from, I think he bought it in 1969 or whatever, 1970 or whatever it was. And I remember we were, you know, I was being recruited by some schools in Florida for baseball at the time. So we were down in, um, you know, we were in the Tampa area and um, we ended up going to a Yankee spring training game and I used his camera and took pictures. I, I wish I had them, um, but I ended up, you know, you didn't have, you know, a super telephoto lens. It was just a standard use lens. And I remember just shooting that game and developing and those pictures back in the high school lab. And um, I remember how much I enjoyed it. And so, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I mean, I didn't have the photo lab and I, I was always too lazy to take film to the photo mat and get it printed and, you know, not be able to develop them the way I wanted them to be developed. So I never really did it between, I never really used my camera at games between 98 and 2001 until it was really a, an acceptable digital camera um, that I could purchase and use. And that's really when it started for me. I went, you would take the, the camera to games and I would travel around with it, you know, just for vacation recreation. And I just started taking a lot of pictures, you know, not for anything other than, and even to this day, it's the same thing and not for anything other than, you know, a background shuffle on my computers for a screensaver. It was the only reason I did it because I just like looking at them, honestly. And, um, I started taking more and more pictures at games and, and then Flickr came out. Um, I can't remember what year it was. I want to say it was 2005 when I discovered Flickr, um, which right now they're really struggling to stay even in business. But um, I started posting, you know, putting up you know, pretty much everything I had there because I really, one of the reasons I wanted to use them, the main reason I wanted to use them was because I didn't trust like storing them on my computer or on a server, which could have a hard drive die. And then I'd lose everything. I'd rather have it. Flick. You know, who would have thought that like using the cloud would be, you know, standard operating procedure for everybody today. This was 15 years ago. Um, and so I post more and more, I, you know, I, I, every single game I went, went to, I took pictures and the cameras got better and the lenses got better. And finally in 2007, I invested in my first DSLR. That was my, my big, you know, financial plunge into, you know, in, into photography. And um, by then, like the picture, you know, I, the picture, some of those pictures, even now, I just, you know, they're, I have them framed and those are 13, 14 years old at this, at, at you know, now. And, um, you know, I, I started, I can't remember if Matt posted one of the pictures, he got pulled one from Flickr and posted it to Matt's blog. And that's, when I first reached out to him or it was the reverse, you know, I started sending him pictures. I think I start, started sending him pictures. I said, you know, man, I think these look cool on the site. I really didn't know what Mets blog was until really until, you know, well, the, they signed Johan Santana. Uh, they traded for and signed Johan Santana. That's when I really discovered Mets blog, which was right before I started writing for them, you know, believe it or not. I had no idea. You know, I really didn't, you know, I read newspapers, you know, I was like, you know, I was wearing my Indiana Jones hat and sitting there reading the paper, you know? Um, and so we kind of connected from there. I would send them some pictures and, you know, we just started chatting back and forth. And, you know, he asked me if I late in 08, if I wanted to write and if I was interested in writing, I'd started my own little diary site, you know, where just really so I could post the pictures. And, um, you know, he had seen that and he asked me if I'd be interested in writing. I said, I'm really not a writer. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, you know, like I said before. And um, he convinced me, it took him, it took him about six months to convince me to start writing. <laughs> and I finally started writing and it just, I just kind of, you know, I wasn't, I still, like I said, I don't think I'm good at it. I and mean, I certainly wasn't good at it then. 
and it needed a lot of work to really conform with the format that you know which he was trying to achieve you know because i think you know we we as writers have a tendency to want to write the, the more we think the more we write you know the more we're going to get our point across which and it's really the exact opposite as i've learned it's the, the less you write the more like you you are to get your point across because you're going to keep the attention span of the of the audience and i learned that at a very early stage and i think that helped that really helped me you know be successful um now some things require more words than others but i think the vast majority of pieces i learned anyway uh, the vast majority of stories required you know 500 words or less sometimes you know a thousand or less depending on the the subject matter and like i think that's what helped you know I want to believe anyway, you know, being, you know, capturing, you know, capturing the audience's attention really helped, you know, help me gain some steam and help garner success. And yeah, I, I don't know how much that played a role in my Twitter success, if you will, because like I said, it really didn't, the numbers really didn't start to go up until 2014, 2015, 2016. And, um, but I think it certainly helped because there was this baseline reputation that was there and this baseline sort of um, is recognizability mm -hmm. a word. Yeah, people recognized who are, they said, oh, you know, I saw him on Mets blog. I saw him, I've seen him on those SNY videos. You know, I, oh, his photos were on, you know, those spring training, those spring training games. And I think, you know, that helped with those connections. Um, I think Major League Baseball helped a lot to, as well. You know, once I you know started the the project with them in 2015, um, they definitely helped. I shouldn't say I think they helped. They de that definitely helped. And I think you know from there, you know, you sort of build upon. I, I've been able to build upon um, that reputation, and you know, and that follow, you know, it becomes exponential after a while. I mean, I think things have certainly slowed down lately because you know what's going on in the world. But um, you know. I think uh, I, I do think there is some luck in there, <laughs> you know. It, like you said, right place, right time, and that's the lucky part. And I think that I, I, I I'm thankful for that for sure. You know, I, I am thankful. Um, but there's been a lot of hard work, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of time in airports and planes, you know, and um, you know, a lot of learning on the job. And you know, I, I always say, you know, every time I go to the ballpark, I learn something new every day, whether it was from a player, an executive, or you know, even an usher. You know, you learn something new and you know, if I can learn something new every day in my life, you know, I'd be grateful, you know, and I was very grateful for those experiences. It must have been amazing, man. And and yeah, as you said, you know, it didn't start to pop off till 2014, 15, 16, but you had five years of work. You had five years of experience yeah. already laid in. Um, you know, what is it? Every overnight success takes about 10 years, I think. So, you know, it's one <laughs> of those things where you had, it's not like you just showed up on the scene. It's people started to notice you and then they could go back and say, wow, okay, no, this isn't just some random guy talking about Mets. This is someone who's covered the team, been with the team and have done something for the team for well over five years at this point. And I don't think it hurts that, you know, for 15, 14, 15, 16, you know, 15 and 16, obviously 15 with the Mets going to the world series, 16 with them being a huge contender. Um, you know, just that, that, uh, the Madison Bumgarner game gets me every single time, but you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, I think that might've also helped that the, more of the baseball world was also paying attention to the Mets and what they were doing. And, um, yeah, you know, I think that definitely. definitely, you know, but again, by that time you already had six, seven years of experience and work put into it. So you already had your, your craft partially mastered. You almost had your 10,000 years or 10,000 hours in it. 10,000 years. So sometimes Mets make it feel <laughs> Feels like, like 10, it, right? <laughs> years. Um, but you know, one, one thing too, I think that's helped and I felt it's important. I mean, take this Noah Syndergaard situation as a great example. I think I would have done myself a disservice just from a, uh, a from a reputation perspective if during the bad times I stayed silent. You know, I think it's important that you know, because I'm a fan too. We're all fans. Um, some of the writers, the fan, the many of the writers are fans. are just fans of other teams. Um, but you know, I think we're all fans of sports. We all love sports and. But, you know, for every good, there's probably, you know, three times the number of bad, you know, especially with the Mets because, it, you know, they're the Mets. They can't get out of their own way, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that. I think even Brody knows that at this point. <laughs> Just can't get out of their own way. Um, but um, Sandy learned that really early, by the way, you know. <laughs> um, 
I think Brody gets it. Anyway, um, but I think, you know, being able to stick with the fans and show them that you're a voice or a person to lean on during these tough times, even if they, you know, a lot of times I feel like they're blaming me for like Noah blowing out his arm or whatever, you know, or, you know, Ike Davis getting I, I, uh, Valley Fever. I'll never forget that one. Um, I remember Lucas Duda breaking his wrist, moving furniture, whatever the hell he did. And I was like, I was totally a fault for that. Um, I was also, by the way, it was my fault. Madison Bumgarner threw a buzzsaw at the Mets in that 2016 wildcard game. I just that's want good you to know, know that's my fault. Good, good. Um, at least I know it's but, someone's fault. So it right. makes me feel better. Um, but um, those are some of the highlights where I've been like the ultimate villain for some reason. But I think people are just doing that because they know I'm listening and they know I get it. And they know I, I feel the same way. You know, I'm not going to express it necessarily, you know, on online because it counts a lot online. It doesn't count very much if I see the Mets make three errors in the ninth inning and lose or whatever. And I, you know, throw my glass across the room. My wife just gets mad at me, you know. <laughs> um, I won't ever do that on social media. I'll try and offer more, you know, I'll take a few steps back from my personal anger at a bad situation and reflect and get ready to say something meaningful that people are going to understand. Even the Noah Syndergaard thing the other day, like honest to God, I saw that and I was just like, you've got to be kidding me, right? I mean, you're not even playing. I mean, I think I even said this. You're not even playing and the guy gets hurt. You know, that is, we all think that. You know, I understand. I think the same thing. But I also think I, you know, when, you know, I take a couple minutes and gather my thoughts and I try and say something, you know, smart anyway, you know, something that people will understand that will calm them down. I think that's helped too. I think that's been important to people, you know, because – like I said, for everything good that happens, you know, there are three other things that happen that are bad and you have to be able, you can't run away from the bad. Um, you know, pragmatism and, you know, honesty is the most important thing to credibility, you know, and um, I think I've been that, you know, some people may think that even though it's honesty on behalf of ownership sometimes or honesty on behalf of the front office, it means that I'm being told what to say. And I can tell you personally, I've never, ever been told what to say in my entire life by the organization. Um, I've been warned at times to not say certain things, but um, and literally warned, but nothing that would have broken the organization. You know, it's just there are things that they, you know, like everybody, like there are things I don't want out there in public. There are things you don't want out there in public. There are things that they don't want out there in public that, you know, I think even, you know, fans with the advent of social media have come to learn, you know, and, you know, there are even things, you know, if you hear something from your ticket rep, there are things that you don't, they don't want out there, you know, that you don't, you know, there, there's a code and I respect, always, I've always respected the code. Um, and look, when ownership has messed up, I've called them out. Um, and the only thing that ownership and really the front office, you know, I, I remember Sandy telling all of us of this, telling all of us this once, he said, we just want you to be fair for better or for worse. And that's all we ask. And we appreciate just fairness and, you know, we can deal with the fallout. And um, he would at the end of every year um, express his appreciation for people on the, in the media being fair to him and his staff and ownership. And, um, you know, I think that, I think that's important. Again, like fair may not be what you, the fan wants to hear, but, you know, I'm not going to lie to make you feel better. You mm -hmm. know, if you don't like what I have to say, tough, you know, at least I know it's the truth. And, you know, if I don't know, I say, I don't know. You know, I mm -hmm. say, I don't know all the time. I'm not afraid to say that, you know? Yeah. And it's, I think it's great. Again, just going back to the, the honesty aspect that you were talking about, like people will pay attention to you. They have to trust you. The only way they can trust you is if they know if you're being truthful right? Like it's a very easy right. um, dynamic and it's a very easy relationship that you can have and you can lose that very quickly if people see or hear that you are not being truthful or honest. And again, the Mets never get out of their way. It's a very just, yeah, it's, it's kind of just a running joke. When Noah Syndergaard got hurt, I was like, well, at least it was this year where there's probably only going to be 100, maybe 80 games. Like that's, that's honestly how I feel as a Mets fan. I'm almost dead inside at this point, um, but I love every <laughs> second of it. And it is uh, just a weird weird thing and no and again like I've, I've been following you for a while and that's why I'm, I'm very grateful that you came on today and I think it's just really cool that you know what you've done and what you've been able to build um, is very important to I think 
you know, the weird little Twitterverse that we live in sometimes, um, but also just from a, a real media perspective, real media, from a media perspective, again, just being open and honest and, you know, taking the brunt of some of those things and kind of taking that step back, as you said, like, now I know when you put something, you know, slightly level-headed on, I, I'm going to times that by 100, and that's probably what you <laughs> said in your head or, or out loud at your TV right after it happened. So I think that gives me a little extra perspective too. So I appreciate that. Yeah, like I said, you know, I reacted the same way as everybody else did to the Noah thing. You know, I honestly don't care who owns the team as long as the team has run well. You know, I, I really don't care. Um, 100%. I, can, I can say Fred is a nice person. He's a passionate person. I think even he would say that he's made some mistakes. Um, you know, I'm not afraid to say from my perspective, he's made mistakes. Jeff has made mistakes. Doesn't mean they're bad people. They're, you know, you know, we all make mistakes and, you know, I'll say when they've made a mistake, but I'll also say, you know, give them a break. You know, just because it's raining outside doesn't mean Fred Wilpon's responsible. I mean, come on, <laughs> you know, um, you know, are, are, are there, are there more functional organizations? Of course there are. I mean, that's, I'd be lying to say if I said anything different, you know, but are there more dysfunctional organizations? Look at East Rutherford, New Jersey. Look no further than East Rutherford. Look at Miami, you know, look at, look at the Marlins, you know, the Dodgers before Magic Johnson mm -hmm. took over. That was a, a crap show to say the least, you know, um, where he was using team funds to pay for his um, personal benefit mm -hmm. and he was not able to make payroll. The Mets have never not been able to make payroll, never once. And if that were ever the case, that's when they'd be forced to sell. Okay. Mm -hmm. People will need to understand that. Yeah. So are they perfect? No, but they're not, they're not as bad as people think they are. They're really not. I mean, you could question the way they run their organization. I think that's more than fair because you're as smart as your wins and losses say you are. And that's just the truth. And they can play whatever game they want to deny that. It's just the truth. You're as smart as the number of wins and losses you have. Period. End of story. Yankees really smart. Mets not as smart. Plain and simple. Yep. Um, but I can tell you, you know, you know, they may not, you know, have the best understanding of how to deliver that championship. But I think they want to win a championship as much as anybody in, you know, in that building. And um, I, 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 I sure hope that they're being guided better by some of these, you know, modern you know, new age, you know, baseball people that Brody's hired. I really hope they are. Um, I, 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 and I'm really, I really wish that the, this is always something with them, you know, the, and the season gets, you know, screwed up by something completely out of their control. But I thought that this was, this team had, you know, a legit shot just at its baseline. And, you know, I mean, we'll see what happens. Um, but, you know, I do think that they were headed in the right direction. I don't know if that's the popular opinion, but this is the way I feel. I think this is a, a pretty good roster. Yeah. I thought, honestly, last year, I thought they had a, I mean, look at the Nationals. When the Nationals got into the playoffs, we all kind of just laughed. It was like, ha, well, at least they're there. You know, whatever. They get the playoff berth. Um, yeah, they'll lose, the, right? they'll lose somehow yeah, in five games. They'll lose because it, they're the Nationals, right? They should have lost in the wild card game, and they eked it out. The Dodgers should have absolutely won that series. Somehow could not figure out how to put them away. They and you know, so that's the craziest part about baseball is, you know, it's, it's, it's like most sports. You get into the playoffs, and you're hot you know, you can get hot and another team can get cold and you can make it all the way to the World Series and then have one of the weirdest World Series you'll ever see. Um, you know, so it's just, you know, I think the Mets, if they got that second wild card spot, you put, you put up that pitching staff against anybody. Don't let the bullpen ever touch the game if that's ever possible, especially last <laughs> year. They absolutely could have had a shot. And, and honestly, the Nationals bullpen was... It's the second worst, I think, in the mm -hmm. league last year. So they're, right behind they're the worse Mets. than the Mets. Yeah, so they were. They were it, slightly he, worse or slightly better. They you know, were mar marginally. And then look at that. Their bullpen was totally fine during the playoffs. It, fine enough to win the World Series. So you never know what can happen. I mean, as you know, Michael, that's baseball season. That's just kind of how it works. And <laughs> yeah. it's just one of those things that I was really hoping. And again, this year, same thing. I think they are better than they were last year. Now, obviously, with the no sin guard stuff, you know, we'll see what happens. And with it being a shortened season, now I'm real you know, we'll see what happens. It's going to be a weird year whenever it does start. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to watch every game that I can. I'm going to live and die. Um, and we'll, we'll just hope that at the end of the year they get a playoff spot. And, again, put Jacob DeGrom against anybody. Put him all seven games. I don't care, man. Whatever that has to get done. Just let's, let's see what happens, man.
I do think if they play this year, um, and I sure hope they – it's really bothering me they're not playing today, but I know there are bigger things than that right now. But, um, you know, if they do play today, we're going to see some things baseball's never done to make it work. You know, I, I, it, it is – this is me not knowing anything, um, but I do feel it's very logical to believe there could be a World Series in a neutral warm weather site this year. Um, I don't know, you know, I thought about it. I, I don't know how wise it is, though, to play into, you know, mid to late towards Thanksgiving, say, or perhaps even later, you know, because if you're in California or Florida or whatever, like, it doesn't matter when you're playing. I don't, I, I don't, I, I worry about that. And then starting, you know, a spring training like you normally do. And next year being the World Baseball Classic, you're going to start spring training on December 26th. So, you know, um, yeah, I exaggerate. They'll start yeah, though, the yeah. first week of February. And, you know, one thing that I think that's hurt a lot of players who have played deep into October and in some cases November is the lack of rest and the lack of just, I need to separate mentally and I need to separate physically for, you know, a month or six weeks. Like they don't have that because by, you know, the end of November, they have to start ramping up their off-season exercise. And if they are hurt and they have to have surgery, that just complicates it even more. So, um, you know, I don't know how, if that will fly. And that's what worries me about this season, that they may not get it in, because I don't think it's smart to play into that part of the fall. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that's good for anybody. Um, I don't think it's good for the players. I don't think it's good for the organizations. I don't think it's good for the fans, because in all likelihood, unless it's the Dodgers or Marlins or Rays or maybe the Texas Rangers, like fans won't get to see their team in the World Series. You know, you can't go to a stadium when it's 25 degrees and snowing. Like you just can't do that. So, and in Minnesota, like it starts snowing like on June 22nd. You know, it's the way it is. It is a cold weather place. So it, it, that's what worries me that they may have the calendar to do it, but I don't think they're going to have the weather to do it or the logistics to do it, you know, so we'll, we'll see. I don't know. Well, yeah, I, I completely agree. We'll see. I think it's, it's, it's going to be a weird year. Obviously as a fan, I'm just rooting for it because I want to watch my Mets play, you know, as much as they make me depressed and as much as, you know, I, I ride high with every win and watching Jacob deGrom do his thing. Um, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, hopefully even if it's 60 game season, I don't care. Just give me something to watch at some point. That's what I'm hoping for. And, and I agree a, a warm weather neutral site again, as a fan of just general baseball, I'm going to watch who's ever in the world series. I don't care. Um, so yeah, that would be weird. And I would feel bad again, if the twins somehow figure out how to beat the Yankees at least once in the postseason uh, and do finally make it through, you know, that would suck if you're a twins fan. First off, who didn't put a dome there, but that's, that's a whole nother conversation. They wanted an outdoor stadium. The fans voted for that. Uh, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I still don't understand it, but that's again, that is what it is. And um, so the last thing, I don't want to keep you here all day. This has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much. And I really do appreciate you going over a little bit. And, and one thing I always want to understand, you've done a really great job at explaining who you are as a person, but then also as, I don't know, for a personality, for lack of a better term, as a writer, as someone on the internet that we, and we being the Mets fans get to pay attention to, have you ever, like, what has your, you know, explain again for me, kind of, you know, you, you aren't, you don't have a, a writing gig, I guess we'll call it at this point. You wrote for SMY, you wrote for MLB, you've done some pretty, pretty high extensive stuff. What is the goal of your writing and moving forward? What are you trying to do as other than, as you said, just kind of have a personal diary that people can read? I mean, my goal has always been, you know, from day one until today in whatever form, in whatever format it is, in whatever form it is is to teach you one thing that you didn't know today. Um, and that's why, you know, when, when I, I go back to saying like, it's important for me to um, get that context into the writing because without it, I, you know, it's hard for me to teach you the reader something you didn't know about the team or the player or, you know, Brody or Fred or the stadium or, you know, why they accidentally painted the line on, you know, that part of the dirt or something, even, you know, so nuanced, you know, the nuances to a lot of people are very interesting, but, um, you know, my goal has always been, you know, when, when I would go to the ballpark, I want to learn something, one thing new today. And I would always do that because they know way more than we do. Let me tell you, they are, 
you know, that, that's a whole other world, and you know, inside inside those lines. And um, you know, if I could take you know those one, you know, that one thing back to you, and you can learn from it, I've done my job, and that's just been my goal. You know, that's what I wanted to do. That's my only. That's my. That's the incentive to for you to be on the same way, the same plane mm-hmm. as I am with knowledge. I mean, obviously, I can't say everything that I that I'm that I learned. Of course, yeah. Um, but I think there's plenty that I have said, which is important, which people have learned, um, you know, whether it's something they're focusing on or paying attention to, or, you know, something to that effect, you know, or like I said, you know, why, you know, I don't know, Terry Collins had, you know, a yellow flower on his hat, you know, and nobody had the answer. If that's the one thing you learned today, then I've done my job, you know? So, you know, some days are just, you know, they're playing baseball. Other days are, you know, of messy and dramatic proportions, you know? So, um, you know, but if you, I think if, if you go there and you're covering the team, whether it's for the post or for whatever, and, you don't bring something back to your readers, you haven't done your job. And Mm -hmm. so that's what, that was always my objective. And I appreciate that, man. This is awesome. Uh, One last time, Michael Barron, baseball writer, photographer, Twitter, Twitter, uh, Twitter famous. Photographer. Photographer. I don't know about that. It's just, (laughs) I have a Twitter following, I guess. I talk people listen. I talk people listen. I mean, you know, and I appreciate that. I appreciate, you know, everybody, you know, that, that level of respect, you know, I don't deserve it. I don't think anyway. And, um, you know, but I'm humbled every single day, you know, when I see all the questions and, you know, and I'm happy to answer as many as I can, I try and get to all of them. You know, when it's, you know, peak Mets, as I like to say, I know a Syndergaard, you know, it's hard to answer all the questions, but I do my best. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I thank you. No. No, no, no. Thank you. We appreciate you, man. And thank you for your time today. This was an absolute blast. I hope you had a little bit of fun. Thanks, Michael. I did. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of For the Love of Sports with Michael Barron. As I said, he's such a cool dude and getting to understand where his Mets fandom comes from and learning some of those extra stories that I personally did not know was a lot of fun. And and really, again, the just the fact that he is so active on Twitter and what he does and, and really why he does it and how he looks at it, I think is super just really great to know it's coming from a, a good place. And I think that that's, that's important. And it's really honestly just made me like him even better. Um, now, if only we could get baseball back. So um, please make sure to follow Michael. I'll have all the socials he wants us to know in the show notes. If you could please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, on iTunes, anywhere you're listening, it would be super helpful for what we're trying to do. And I really do thank you for your time today. It's the only thing we don't get more of. So I appreciate you giving me some of yours. And I hope you make it a wonderful day. Yes.